to turn in your Bible to two places this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. One advantage of being the one who puts the service order together, you can pick which text you want to preach. And if you don't like it later on in life, you can change it to something else. If any other speakers do this, I will fire them. But I'm going to read Hebrews 12, and I'm going to preach 1 Timothy 2. <coughs> Anyways, I think I have that liberty to do so. All right, but I do want you to see this in Hebrews 12. My task this morning is just to set before you the superlative mediator. Superlative meaning you cannot invent, think, or come up with anything greater. This is the top of the spectrum. There's lots of mediators in Scripture, but there is no mediator like unto Christ. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, the contrast, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in joyful gathering. Changing the word festal to joyful, joyful gathering. And to the church, ESV says assembly, ecclesia, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator. Mediator of what? Of a new covenant, and the sprinkling to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And by the way, note the beginning of the next verse. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, if you'll find your place in Timothy, we'll use our time this morning in Timothy only as far as the text is concerned. So if you'll find your place in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it's simply verses 5 and 6. It should be somewhat familiar to many of you. And the text reads, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The superlative mediator. So I recount for you very briefly Two mountains, there is Mount Sinai and there is Mount Zion. These are the two contrasts in Hebrews, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Both of these mountains receive a sevenfold description, seven characteristics of these two mountains. Mount Sinai is a mountain that cannot be touched. It's a mountain of blazing fire. It's a mountain of darkness. It's a mountain of gloom. 
It's a mountain of storm. It's a mountain of trumpet blast, but note, the trumpet blasts are blasts of judgments. And then it's a mountain that has a terrible voice. It is so terrible that the people say, don't speak another word to us. And it was so terrible, this scene of these seven descriptions back in Exodus was so clear that it caused even Moses to tremble with fear. Now the other mountain is Mount Zion. Mount Zion, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, also has seven descriptions to it. It is described as the city of the living God. It's a place with myriads of angels. Note this great contrast, terror and fear, but here's these myriads of angels in joyful assembly. And it's the church made up of those on heaven's roll. To a judge. You hear the word, to a judge, you're like, wait a minute, that sounds a little bit more negative. (laughs) To come to the judge who's already declared you just is not a fearful thing. It's a great joy to meet the judge who's declared you just. And you come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You come to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the saints who have gone before us. And... Oh, glory. You come to Jesus, the mediator, the one who established peace between God and you. You get to come to him, and you get to come to the sprinkling of blood, which talks about atonement for all of our sins. So today, as we look at the mediator in this sevenfold description, we take mediator, and that's how we find ourselves in 1 Timothy 2, because there we find a clear description of the mediator. Now, it's the same word in Greek, if you're interested, the mediator in Hebrew is the same word here in Timothy for mediator. Now, my simple thesis to kind of set the stage now is this. Polar opposites are eternally bound into harmony by the superlative mediator. Polar opposites are eternally bound into harmony by the superlative mediator. Now, number one, we'll talk to you about problems. This is the problem. You may not know this, but underlying or behind this, here is the problem with this mediatorial role of Jesus Christ. The problem is is that it has to do with a word that you may be accustomed to here, but a world in which many in the world hate. And that word is propitiation. There are three notable words that deal with atonement. You say atonement, you can say expiation, and then you have the word propitiation. And you'll find that this word, the reason some people don't like this word is because they know what it means. Make no mistake about it, you won't find propitiation in the NIV. The reason it's not there because they don't like what the word means. What the word has to do with is the removal of wrath. Well, if wrath has to be removed, then somebody has it. And in our equation here, God is the one who has wrath, and the wrath he has is directed towards humanity. And if that wrath is not removed, then humanity has to endure that wrath or receive that wrath. And 
So people don't like to think of a God who has wrath, working with men who have sin. They don't like that concept, and so they kind of shy away from this word. Now, you say, well, propitiation is a big word. Maybe they just don't like to pronounce it. Mississippi is a big word, but you figured it out. But the definition here is really simple. It's a big word, but a very short definition. The removal of wrath, Leon Morris. The removal of wrath. That's what the word means. Years ago, there was a debate with the Getty song, The Wrath of God Was Magnified. And this church wanted to have it changed. They didn't like to sing a line that says the wrath of God magnified, they contacted the Gettys and said, can we change the line in your song? And what we want to change it to is the love of God is magnified. Then we're okay singing the love of God is magnified, but we don't want to sing the wrath of God is satisfied. Why? Because not only does it show God has wrath, but it shows the satisfaction for that wrath is satisfied in his own son. The concept of a holy God pouring wrath on his own son for sinners to go free is something that makes American people, in a sense religious people, a little queasy because we're so inundated with things such as the love of God. The wrath of God, the removal of his wrath, that is the problem with this concept of mediator. So I would say it this, I don't know if this is mine or somebody else's, I've said it so long that I don't know where it came from, but this is the line that I say about American Christianity. Men are happier with a God without wrath, saving men without sin to take them to a heaven without holiness. They're happier with that. The only problem is is you don't get that liberty because God is God. You don't get to change up who he is. So that's one of the problems. We can't conceive of a God with wrath, holiness, or justice. Another problem that we have with this issue is we cannot comprehend the depth of the depravity of the human heart. How could God send anybody to hell? How could God not send someone to hell? We have a hard time understanding just how depraved the human heart is. And so we struggle when we hear words of judgment and wrath and eternal torment. We struggle with those things. Blinded eyes are unwilling to see that the Son of God actually substitutes in the place of depraved individuals. That everything that you deserve is absorbed by a substitute. It's hard to see, for some, a God who is holy, satisfying his justice on his own son who is sinless, and the only way you can understand that is to understand substitution. And also it's a problem in our culture, a sentimental view of God that cannot comprehend a God who would pour out wrath on his own son for the sins of others. It's almost like the world can stomach Genesis 22 because a ram is provided at the last moment. We kind of question how God could tell Abraham to sacrifice his own son, but since it has a happy ending and Isaac gets spared and the ram's provided, we're okay with it. But when we come to the cross, there is no providing of a lamb. The son gets slaughtered. And we live in an easy world We'd rather have four spiritual laws. We'd rather have the ABCs or even this pathetic slogan that salvation is so easy that a caveman can do it. 
and rather follow some rules and go through some emotions rather than to deal with the reality of the truth of what God says about himself, about humanity, and about his son. Now, in our text, 1 Timothy 2, in verse 5, you will notice in the first line, it says very clearly, there is one God. There's one God. So I've presented you with a couple of problems. I won't belabor those. There's issues, and people define God this way and that way. But we must know this morning as we start Easter week, whatever you do, there's only one God. And he has the liberty and the sovereignty to define himself. We don't get to define God. Well, my God, look, I'm not interested in your God in that sense. What I want to know is who does God reveal himself to be? And I have to submit to that definition. There's only one God, a single entity, uniformity, quality, one it started way back in the law of Moses. You know these things, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you see it in the prophet Isaiah. There's many of these texts. I'll just give you a couple, but you hear it in Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord. There is no other, no other. Besides me, there is no God. Not, there's not one. I equip you, though you do not know me, the people that, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there's none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. We, we have to be brought to a reckoning to, to be dealt with by this God because there's not another one we can plead for. We're not another one we can call out to because he, by definition, claims exclusivity to his deity. I'm the only God. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says basically the same thing. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Not only is there not another one, there's not even one like him. And the distinction that Isaiah makes there in that text is that God declares the end from the beginning. The ancient times, things that are not yet done. He says, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. God declares the beginning and the end, everything in the middle, and he makes all come to be according to his decree. This is our God from Scripture. Now, as I think about one God, a couple of observations this morning. This one God, out of all the things we know about God... One thing that we must forever remind ourselves, he is the eternally holy God. He's the thrice holy God. There's no blemish in him. He has absolute purity to the nth degree. Holy, holiness, and holiness demands justice. A holy God is going to be just in his dealing with all lawbreakers. That's the nature of God. God has written the law, laid out the law, established it plain, and every single person that breaks the law deserves his righteous judgment for being a lawbreaker. This is not a hard concept. 
You find someone in our society who does a heinous crime and murders somebody, burns somebody's house down, and it's your family member, it's your house, and they go to court. You want the judge to say, guilty. They deserve the full penalty of the law for what they have done. That's what a just judge does. When we come here before God, this one God, why would we expect anything less? He is the holy God of heaven. He is the righteous God of heaven. He has the final verdict upon all. And lawbreakers are brought before him, and he renders a decision upon their destiny for eternity. And we would say this morning, this one God hates sin. With every fiber of his being, he is diametrically opposed to sin. He hates sin in every facet. He is opposed to all of it. To the degree that if you took sin and you laid it on his only son, he would slaughter him. This one God, according to Psalm 711 and also 11.5, I think, this God is angry with the wicked Every single day. You think about it. This God is so holy that even when the angels sinned one time, he removed them, excommunicated them out of the heaven, and barred the door that they could never return for all of eternity. Even the angels created beings kicked out of heaven for sin. He didn't spare the ancient world. And everything upon the earth was wicked. He flooded and killed them all, except Noah and his family. And he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, brought them to an ash heap because of all of their wickedness. It's the same God who struck down Uzzah for touching the ark, and Ananias and Sapphire in Acts chapter 5 for lying. This is the holy God. This, you say, well, that's not my God. Well, then you need a new God because there's only one, and this is who he is in Scripture. Now, Thinking about those two mountains and thinking about Mount Sinai, I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20, where you could just, just two verses, where you can get a picture of a right reaction to a revelation of God in the Old Testament at this mountain, after the giving of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, when this God, this one God shows up at Mount Sinai, the people, they're so overwhelmed with fear. They say, Moses, you talk to him, but we ain't talking to him. That's, I mean, they're scared to death. And you look at Exodus chapter 20, and you look at verse 18. Here's the response to the revelation of God on Sinai that day in history. Here it is, verse 18. When all the people saw the thunder. Yeah, put that on your thinking cap. Go out and see thunder. Whatever they saw, it says, since the noise, it's like it's shaking the whole thing, I suppose. But they saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning. And here's that trumpet. They hear the sound of the trumpet of judgment. And then they see the whole mountain smoking. And notice, the people, this is Sergeant York, the people are a-fearing. They're, they're afraid. And they tremble. And they, they stand far back. And they said to Moses, you, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. There's a very, very real fear when this God is revealed to the people of Israel. 
Now just note, just where you don't lose track, this God who revealed himself on Sinai is the same God on Mount Zion. But there's a whole different response in Zion than there is in Sinai. But here when he revealed himself in Sinai, the only response, fear and trembling and bringing distance back because I do not want to get too close to this God. If I get too close, I'm going to die. Let your brain work. How in the world are we going to get close to this God? We're going to need a better mediator than Moses. We're going to need something to to bridge this gap. It's going to have to be greater than Moses. We don't have the liberty to redefine God. You don't have the ability to divert the wrath of God. It's only Christ, the superlative mediator, who could do such a work. Look at your text again, 1 Timothy 2. One God. Then you see the next phrase, there's one mediator. Same Greek construction, one God, one mediator. And he gives some defining factors. This mediator, specifically, to make sure we don't get into other areas, this mediator is the one who is functioning between this holy God and sinful men. That's where this mediator is doing the glory of his mediation between this holy God and sinful men. Now, quite simply, a definition for mediator. One who mediates between two parties... Notice, mediate between two parties to remove or reach a common goal. In other words, arbitrator. To bring a common goal. Bring these two parties together. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, One that makes up the breach between two disagreeing parties. In the Valley of Vision, which is written by the Puritans, in the Valley of Vision, I love this line, when deity and humanity were infinitely apart. Deity and humanity infinitely apart. You can't measure the distance. How can this be brought together in harmony? Or if you don't like Watson and you don't like the Valley of Vision, then perhaps we should ask Job. Job says it this way in Job 9, 32 and 33. This is NASB, by the way. He is not a man as I am that I may answer him. There's a point. We know this about God. He's not a man like us, right? Not God the Father. That we may go to court together. I'm going to go to court with God. This can't happen. And then Job says, there's no umpire. There's no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on both of us. You see, in order for me to go before God, I'm going to need somebody that can put their hand on God and their hand on me and bring us together. Without that connecting in the middle, there's no way I could come into his presence. There's no umpire. There's no arbiter. It is in Christ that we have a mediator of better things superlative mediator. Now these are in Hebrews. There's several of them. Let me recount them. Hebrews 8.6. Hebrews 8.6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. Much more excellent than what? Much more excellent than Moses and the ministry of the old covenant. And then the old, then the old as the covenant he mediates is better because it's enacted on better promises 
And then in Hebrews 9.15, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then in Hebrews 12.24, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Holy God, sinful man, Job says, I need somebody to lay hands on both to bring us together. And that person is Christ, the one mediator. Now, this claim, this revelation from Scripture, let, us, let it sink in. It excludes every other mediator that could be brought up, that could be redefined or instituted, every other mediator is struck down because the Bible says there is only one. And he defines who the one is. He goes on to say, the man, Christ Jesus. Everything else is excluded. If Christ is not your mediator, you don't have a mediator sufficient to bring you into court before this holy God. Now, I'll say Job again. Uh, two other th- thoughts on Job. Uh, in just a moment. All others excluded. This is, let me say Watson one more time. Watson says, as there was but one ark to save the world from drowning, so there is but one Jesus to save sinners from damning. One ark, one Jesus, excluding all others. So I ask the question. Where will salvation be found? Where are we going to find salvation? Job says, Job 28, 12, where shall wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding? Or Job 28, 14, the deep says, well, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. And I add to Job's words here, and I give a lengthier list. And we say, the angels could say, it's not in me. I can't mediate for you. Morality says, I can't mediate for you. You Try to be moral. Moral uh, improvement is not going to help you before a holy God. The law says, not in me. The law drives you to Christ. It's not in the law. Works, do good works. The good works say, not in me in me. And we could go through all of these mediators in Scripture. Moses was a mediator. Phinehas was a mediator. Remember how he brought that spear in at the right time and killed that person and stopped the plague that was killing all those people? Is a mediation between them. What about Esther mediating for the Jews? She's not enough. Mediation is not in her. What about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, constantly pleading and weeping over a lost nation? Jeremiah's not enough. It's not in him. We know the classic verse. There's salvation in no other. It's not anywhere else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You say, preacher, we know all of this. Yes, but we live in a world that don't understand. We got a whole country of Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador and all around the place. They got Mary trying to mediate. Mary can't mediate for you. We got people doing the rosary beads. They're not going to help. We got all these things that people use and try in order to be right with God, and none of them are accepted. There's only one mediator, and it is Christ who is our mediator. 
God's providence of his son excludes all other attempts at reconciliation. God's providence, think of it, gave the best. What more do you want heaven to give? What do you, what do you want heaven to give? He, he gave his one and only son. What do you, want? you want him to give an angel? That's a demotion. What, 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 you want to give him something else? There's everything else you can think of is less than Christ. Heaven, God, gave his absolute very best to be the mediator for you. You say, how should that strike my fancy? It should cause you to be eternally in love and grateful for the providence of God of giving Christ to you. You know, right now, this very moment, there are millions and billions of people that know not Christ and are not sitting under the gospel preaching, and God's brought you to this little place to hear about the superlative mediator. That's all grace. There's one relationship. One God, there's one mediator, and there's one relationship. Look again in your text. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You'll see in verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's one relationship that we're talking about in this text, and the only one that matters for us is this relationship between God and man implications are what? They're very strong implications. They're, they're very alarming. You see, because when it comes to reconciliation, when it comes to a mediator, it means there's hostility between two parties. Somebody's offended. Somebody's an offender. There's tension in the room. Something has to be done to alleviate this tension that's here between these parties. So let me give you some text to illustrate. In Romans 8, 7, very clear. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. Strong word. Hostile. The mind on the flesh is hostile to who? Hostile to God. You think about lost humanity in the world, and they think they're good people, they do good works, they mow their grass, they wash their truck, they're good neighbors. Their mind is on the flesh, and the text says every day they are hostile to God. By their very existence, they're rejecting Him. Why? You say, why are you saying they're hostile to God? The text says, because their mindset does not submit to God's law. They won't submit. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They're conceited. And they say things like this. We do not want this man to rule over us. I'm an American. Put my pants on one leg at a time and nobody tells me what to do. That's the mentality. Hostile to God. And then you see in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 uh, through 16. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, this relationship between God and man, what did he do? He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's the wall he broke down. How did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might do something, what? Create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace... He might reconcile us both to God 
in one body through the cross. Notice, thereby, by this work Christ does, thereby killing the hostility. This overwhelming thought of truth that humanity, myself, who has a mind that is hostile to God, walking contrary to God, could be brought into relationship with this God in harmony and peace for all of eternity. This is the truth of the gospel. And we could be in harmony with him. Or I'll give you James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, James says. Do you not know? Do you not know this? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is hatred to God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In that one verse, we find the great problem of Christianity. You know what they've redefined Christianity as? You come in and ask Jesus in your heart and say he's your Savior, and then you have Jesus, and then you go out and you can have the world, and you can have both. No, 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 no. This one mediator claims primary solitarily himself as the one who's to rule upon your heart. I don't want Christ and the world. It's Christ, Christ, Christ. He's the one who's to reign. And he says, I'm to die to myself. I'm to die to this world. And I'm to embrace him by faith. That's the implications. It's just hostility. There has been an offense. And people may not understand or realize this. But the offense is found in the way that man has responded or not responded to God. So you have two camps. You have those that will rail out and curse and yell, say, I don't care nothing about God and I don't believe in God. Yesterday was National Atheist Day. Full has said in his heart there is no God. There's some that rail out against God. And then there's others that say nothing. And when you tell them about Jesus, they go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, I talked to a guy the other day. He goes, man, make sure and preach the right word for Easter. What do you care? You ain't coming. I mean, it's just neutral, neutrality. Hell is filled with neutral people that make no response. Nice people. They grin, they smile. Hey, be like over here at shortstop one day. Come in, grin and smile, and they hear Jonathan's a missionary, and they give him 50 bucks. I'm like, 50 bucks ain't getting you to heaven. It's just, but just neutral, non-responsive, but responding with their non-response. The offense is when man redefines God by creating a God that fits his own fleshly agenda. You don't understand how silly the world is, the religious world? Here's how silly it is. You look at, like, say, Luke 24 or John chapter 20. And on on the Lord's Day, they went to the tomb, they rolled the stone back, and the ladies went and they hid Easter eggs all around. They went and told the disciples to see if they could find the eggs. That's what we make church into. Then you get condemned if you don't participate with what American religion says we ought to be about. What happened to let's make church about Christ? You want to go home and find an egg? That's fine. But the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth for the proclamation of the gospel and the edification of Jesus Christ, the superlative mediator. The offense is when man gives more honor to idols than to God. And if there is an offense, there's been an offender. And we know who the offender is. We see it early on. Even in that dreadful scene of Sinai, what do the people do? 
they make a golden calf. They build high places throughout all the Old Testament prophets, unwilling to tear them down. They spurn the law of God. Then you see them, as we saw in John 19, they reject the Son of God. Fending. Even if you're in this room and you've never repented, you've never believed, you, you won't be baptized, you've offended God. You've offended me. I'm not the issue. You've offended God by shaking your fist and saying, no, you're not going to have my heart. You're offending God, not me. It's, it's a rejection of God and His glorious gospel. There's an offender. Someone's been offended, and there are consequences to the offense. There are consequences. What are, what are consequences? I'll give you a consequence. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. It's a consequence. John three eighteen. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. John three thirty six. But the wrath of God remains on him, upon the person who's unwilling to receive Christ. You see, there's no way for a holy God to simply overlook the problem. It's not going to do it. And, and just move on, like sweep it under a rug, as they say. Let me put it this way. The issue, sin and a holy God, the issue cannot be forgotten without injury to the offended party. God's been offended. He must be satisfied. He must be vindicated. He can just overlook it. The issue cannot be overlooked without great injury to justice. If there's no execution of law, then no laws are ever executed, then there's no justice in the land, and the people just go crazy. The issue cannot be minimized without great harm done to the character of the offended party. Impossibilities. Impossibilities. Man cannot come to God unless God draws. Man will never choose to come to God in his current estate. Man cannot come to God on any other terms than the terms that God has set in place. Man cannot draw up a better plan of reconciliation, nor can he draw a plan that God would ever be pleased with. God is only pleased with his Son. He's the only one he's pleased with. He's the superlative mediator. If he doesn't mediate for you, you have no mediation. Let me give you an imperative in light of these things. This comes from the Valley of Vision. Herein is wisdom. When I was undone with no will to return to him, no intellect to devise recovery, he came. He came. God incarnate. What did he come for? To save me. Save me what? To the uttermost. As a man to die my death. To shed satisfying blood on my behalf. To work out a perfect righteousness for me. This is what he did. What a mediator. If you want it in another story, I'll give it to you in Luke 18. You see this man, he says, Lord, be propitious to me, the sinner. 
I just need someone to divert the wrath of God. And the only one I know who can do that is Christ. You must be reconciled to God or you'll remain eternally estranged from Him. Reconciliation between God and man is the balm that your soul needs for everlasting comfort. The providence of God has set forth the mediator who will bind the two opposing parties into a harmonious one for eternity. Now, in conclusion this morning, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man have caused a gap of infinite distance. The gap is so wide that only God himself would be able to bridge this divide. Man in his natural state cannot bridge the gap, and even worse, he doesn't want to. Man is repulsed by God. He's dead in the trespasses and sins. But God initiates reconciliation, accomplishes this supernatural miracle through a work called regeneration, and the giving of faith so that men will embrace the completed work of his dear son to the praise of his infinite wisdom. Now, of the differences between the description of Mount Sinai and the description of Mount Zion, to me, the greatest difference is the mediator. The same God is over both mountains. The same humanity is the, at the bottom of the mountain. The difference between trembling with fear and coming to joyful assembly is the one mediator who mediates for us. When Christ is the mediator, you can come to Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? I don't know, but it has a myriads of angels. It has, it's called the church, and there's a judge there who's claimed our justification. And we get to come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and we get to come to Jesus. And we get to come because of the sprinkling of his blood. What a wonderful thing to be brought into the city of God. Father in heaven, thank you for Christ. Thank you for Christ, the great superlative mediator. No one, no one is able to bear this mediatorial role other than Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your providence. Thank you for your perfections. I thank you so much for Christ mediating for me, mediating for these people. And I pray today that even though there's some here that have not believed, that today they would look to Christ and say, Christ, would you mediate for me? We pray these things by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.